Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians here to have a podcast book club with each other and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting, so we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. And we generally completely spoil the book, so be warned. And today we will be discussing A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. That's right, we're doing the two queens of sci-fi and fantasy back-to-back. I love Ursula K. Le Guin so much. And I am just so thrilled to be talking about her. My warm-up question for you, I initially wanted to be like, oh, I like forget what my initial warm-up question was, but I need to bring this up sooner rather than later. Have you ever seen any adaptations of this book? Um, TV shows, movies, anything? I bring it up because Ursula hated all of them. I, I, I have not. Um, I have, because like on HBO Max or just Max now, they had like the Miyazaki compilation, like uh, the library of Miyazaki stuff in there. And uh, Wizard of Earthsea was on there. And I was like, what is this? So while I was reading this book, I was like, I looked into that one and I saw that she was like, yeah, it's a good movie. Kind of. (laughs) And she was like, and then uh, when it came out, she was like, well, it's a good movie. And then a couple years later, she was like, yeah, it was a good movie, but not my book at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Have you seen any of them? Well, okay. So the Miyazaki movie is called Tales from Earth. Yeah. And it's based on Earthsea books. A Wizard of Earthsea, which we are reading today, and then also The Tombs of Achuan, which is the second yep. book. And um, I have her article in Slate. She wrote it in 2004. She just, like, needed <laughs> to write about it. She was, like, pissed. Um, she said that it was... Um, she goes, I don't know what the film is about. It's full of scenes from the story arranged differently in an entirely different plot so that they make no sense. My protagonist is Ged, a boy with red-brown skin, and in the film, he's a petulant white kid. Readers who have been wondering why I let them change the story may find some answers here. And then she was basically like, I was hired as a consultant, which means whatever they wanted to mean. <laughs> And I couldn't change anything. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think when I was reading the brief um, Wikipedia article about it, it was that Miyazaki integrated it with a bunch of other, like, fairy tale stories that he was interested in, and then made it into something completely different, which I do, on one hand, appreciate when you make a movie out of a book, it's either, like, stick to the source material, or just go so far afield that it's a different, completely different story. I think that those are like the two options because sometimes people are like, okay, well that was a good movie, but not the original source material, but I can appreciate, appreciate it as its own complete separate entity. But I think the, the, we'll talk about it more, but I think the whitewashing is a big, a big part of part of this story's history. Really? For sure. Yeah. Yes. Because this thing is, she's old. Yeah, yeah, it came out in 1968. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's been time for it to be whitewashed. Should we talk about Ursula K. Le Guin, the classic factory? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Please, play, please lay her out for me. <laughs> okay, totally. So besides being the love of my life, <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin is one of the most celebrated authors of all time. Period. <laughs> so there's that. The K stands for Krober. So Ursula Krober Le Guin lived from 1929 to 2018. 
Um, she was a celebrated author whose body of work included 12 novels, 12 volumes of short stories, 11 volumes of poetry, 13 children's books, five collections of essays, and four works of translation. She has six Nebula Awards, seven Hugo Awards, a Science Fiction Writers Association's Grand Master, a Penn Malamud Award, and countless other awards. So in the year 2000, she was also named a living legend by the Library of Congress. True. Just just a quick overview. Right. Uh, she grew up in Berkeley, California. Her dad was an anthropologist, Alfred, Alfred Kroeber, um, and he was famous for collecting cultural data on Western tribes of Native Americans and for working with Ishi, who claimed to be the last California Yahi Indian. And then her mother, Theodora Kroeber, is the author of Ishi, which is a book about Ishi. Uh, and I think we see this like anthropologist background in a lot of her work. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So she attended Radcliffe College and did graduate work at Columbia. And then she married a historian, <laughs> Charles A. Le Guin, in Paris, very romantic, in 1953. And then, fittingly, they moved to Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and had three children and four grandchildren. Um, so her first major work of science fiction was The Left Hand of Darkness, and it is considered groundbreaking for its radical investigation of gender roles and its moral and literary complexity. Her novels, The Dispossessed, which is my personal favorite Le Guin book, and Always Coming Home, redefined the scope and style of utopian fiction. Her poetry drew increasing critical interest as she got older, and her last collection, So Far So Good, was published after her death. Her writerly fans include Grace Paley, Carolyn Kayser, Gary Snyder, and John fucking Updike. <laughs> when, when she passed, George R.R. R. Martin had this to say. She was one of the giants, a gifted storyteller dedicated to her art. She influenced a whole generation of writers who came after her, including me. The Left Hand of Darkness ranks as one of the best science fiction novels ever written in my estimation, and The Dispossessed and The Lathe of Heaven were splendid works as well. The original Earthseed trilogy occupies a similar lofty position in the fantasy pantheon, though it was badly served by its television adaptation. <laughs> Go off. George knows the better than everyone else. <laughs> so true. He goes on to say that the golden age of science fiction is usually reckoned to have been the Campbell era at Astounding, and its big three were Heinlein, Asimov, and Van Gogh. Van Vogt. Sorry. Vogt. Van Vogt. And vote. I don't know. Yeah, as important as that era was for me, the true golden age uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, when the big three were Roger Zelazny, Samuel R. Delaney, and Ursula K. Le Guin. <laughs> we shall never see their like again. The world is poorer today. That's what he wrote when she died. <sighs> On her website, her About Ursula page lists a series of critical reviews from The Chronicle, Newsweek, Publishers Weekly, and The Post, and Library Journal, but it also includes the following from Josh B, age eight, from, from Detroit. I really, 1L, liked cat wings a lot and hope you will write more about them. I drew a picture of a cat wing, end quote. Cat wings are from her Cat Wings children's series about four kittens with wings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know. I'm tearing up. Emotional. Oh yeah. my God. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> It's fine. 
Her first published book was Rokanon's World, which would go on to be part of the Hainish Cycle, published in 1966. And then A Wizard of Earthsea, the first in the series, was published two years later in 1968. Her last novel was Lavinia, published in 2008, but she continued publishing essays, short stories, poems, and interviews until her death and after it in 2018. So that's our baby. (laughs) (laughs) I just, okay, I don't know if you'll, you probably started reading Ursula K. Le Guin at an earlier point in your life than me. I I was like a Harry Potter kid and like a Star Wars kid and a Lord of the Rings kid. And then I didn't read fantasy books again, probably until like three years ago. I did not realize that about you. Yes. So I didn't read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy for a long time. I read a bunch of like dystopian fiction in middle school, you know, when The Hunger Games came out and was popular. But I didn't read a lot of it until a couple years ago, I would say. And so I feel sad, like, having wasted my life not reading Ursula K. Le Guin while she was alive. Mm. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Not that it changes anything, but it's like, Ursula K. Le Guin was alive for the majority of my life up to this point. And I didn't appreciate that. Right. You know? We didn't know what we had while we had it. For me, Ursula was like Betty White. Like, it was like, she was never going to die. And then she did. And I was like, what the fuck? But yeah. So, right. I get what you're saying. I do feel like Ursula is one of the only, like, legends that we've been conscious of passing. Yeah. Um, Which sucks. I know. Okay, well, do you want me to read the the Earthsea summary that I have on the back? Not the summary, but the book. Yes, well, can you explain to the group, because they can't see your, like, beloved worn copy, what you have going on? Okay, so I have a very, very worn copy um, of A Wizard of Earthsea, uh, so much so that I actually cannot read the back. It is indecipherable. Well, it is decipherable, but it's not decipherable on the spot. So I actually wrote it down ahead of time from the book because it's so hard to read it. Like it is from it's from 2012, but it has like that metallic under mm-hmm. to to the book. So the the soft cover is getting like scraped off. So you the metallic is just underneath. If you yeah. had to estimate how many people have taken that out of the library before you, what would you say? Honestly, I have no idea. I would say like probably at least 30 to 40 or 5 like children who took this in their backpack everywhere <laughs> yes fabulous so true yeah you, know? you never know right like well what is the indecipherable back ged was the greatest sorcerer in all of Earthsea, but he was once called sparrowhawk a reckless youth hungry for power and knowledge who tampered with long-held secrets and loosed a terrible shadow upon the world this is the tale of his testing how he mastered the mighty words of power tamed an ancient dragon and crossed death's threshold to restore the balance with millions of copies sold worldwide ursula k Le Guin's earth sea cycle has earned a treasured place on the shelves of fantasy lovers everywhere alongside the works of such beloved authors as jrr tolkien and c.s lewis so that's what we got that's yeah. what we got there not a plot heavy blurb for sure i have two reviews mm-hmm. uh, i mean since it's ursula k Le Guin, all of them are just like like we talked about with octavia butler right. they are just like very literary yeah in their response yes. because of who she is and yeah. who she was so publishers weekly said stellar Le Guin is at the height of her powers, a superb stylist with a knack for creating characters who are both wise and deeply humane. 
Hmm. Kirkus reviews, readers will be beguiled by the flawless poetic prose, the philosophy expressed in thoughtful, potent metaphor, and the consummately imagined world. Mm. That's what I got. I know. Beguiled. Beguiled. I know. How many times are you going to use the word ensorcel today, do you think? Uh, well, there, there. I don't know, actually, but there was a lot of ensorcelment happening. So... <laughs> We should start a different after game where we count how many times you use the word ensorcelled. Um, I do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I love there's it. Actu- there's actually, I think I started saying ensorcelled because of another podcast, I mm-hmm. believe, mm-hmm. called uh, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, which is about <laughs> Lord of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Oh my god, you are such a dweeb. Okay, so did you find any good Goodreads reviews? Yes. So because everyone who rates books on Goodreads is a foul idiot, Wizard of Earthsea has a 4.01 overall rating. Um, The correct answer, everyone, is 5.0, if not 6. Um, (laughs) Because we're friends on Goodreads, Goodreads wanted me to know that Lucy Dacus only gave it four stars, for which I will never forgive her. Uh, She called it Dune's watery cousin. N.K. Jemison, whom I trust above all else, also only gave it four stars. All of you are heathens. It is five stars. Um, Don't come for N.K. too. I know, right? Well, I wouldn't normally, but this is a big deal. Okay, let's do some math. 1% of all Goodreads reviewers gave it one star. Lisa of Troy said, in an effort to school Ursula K. Le Guin on writing style, the paragraphs were far too long. When there is a lot of action, readers should be rapidly turning the pages. Ged made a tremendous amount of errors, but each incident only lasts a page or two. Okay. (laughs) Lisa, come on. Evan, in a similar effort to teach Ursula K. Le Guin, wrote that she needs to learn to show, not tell. (laughs) Um, C wrote that it ranks as one of the most undeserving fantasy works that have received critical acclaim. The best part is that he wrote that Le Guin could have written an internationally known bestseller, but instead she chose to pen a singularly uninteresting account of a wizard named Ged. Uh, I'll drop a note here to say that Wizard of Earthsea has sold literally millions of copies worldwide, and Margaret Atwood called it a wellspring of fantasy literature, but okay. I mean, I just, it's so funny it, because it's like um, people who are, who write fantasy definitely feel differently, you know? Like, it's like the yes. people in the industry are like, no, that's pretty, it was. This slapped, actually. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Like, George R. R. Martin wrote a whole blog post about her when she died. <laughs> I forgot to mention the most important part of the George R. R. Martin blog post, which is that at the end, he had an emoji of a little crying alien. <laughs> I love George. Um, George is an icon. Okay. All right. Keep going. Yeah. No, no. It's good. It's good. This is a five-star review that I loved. Kara wrote, if you don't have this type of connection to Le Guin or a Wizard of Earthsea, which is like a longstanding and loving connection, I can understand how easy it is to dismiss this book as a two or three star endeavor. It's a condensed story with a small cast of characters who aren't necessarily the most intriguing bunch you'll ever meet. There's a lot of narration and exposition covering most of Ged's childhood and adolescent years. It's not exactly the big budget epic fantasy type of story that is so popular now. 
nor is Ged, your typical fantasy farm boy, called to be the chosen one. He's a wizard of no small talent who, because he's a cocky adolescent boy, screws up and spends no small part of his adult life attempting to rectify the mistake. If you read A Wizard of Earthsea as a straight fantasy story about good versus evil and wizards and dragons, you will probably be disappointed. Read this way, it's a good book, but it isn't great. It's too brief to be a satisfying epic meal. The strength of Wizard of Earthsea is neither its style nor its substance, but its subtext. This book embodies literary fiction a lot better than much of what gets marketed under that term today. Yes. 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 That, Kara gets it. (laughs) And then... Bradley wrote, I love everything about it. It's all magic and equilibrium. The magic is super impressive and the world of islands is gorgeous. But most importantly, it's Sparrowhawk that I love. Mm. (laughs) That's so cute. Like, I I love that one person is like, no, you need to read this as literary fiction for it to be good fantasy. And the other one was just like, no, it's just good fantasy. (laughs) Like... I I see both. Yeah. For me, this is just straight up good fantasy. And also it has like, it's like an iceberg in that like the top is like good fantasy and the bottom, the huge part of it is like incredible yeah. literary prowess. Yes. You know? Agreed. It felt like, like if I were to make a movie of A Wizard of Earthsea, it would have to mm. start out with Princess Bride style with the grandpa reading a book. Because it's, like, somebody, Mm. like, whispering a story into your ear. Like, that's how I feel (gasps) the mood of the book is. You know what I think the mood of the book is? And we'll talk about this a little bit. But I think it would have to start with someone chanting it from, like, a scroll. Yeah. Or, like, with a lyre in the background. (laughs) Like, a tavern tale. Well, it's like you're, like, tucked into bed and some somebody Mm. you love and trust is, like, being, like, let me read you this book. (sighs) So true. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Um, what, do you want to tell us what happens yes, in the book? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Great. All right. This is straight from Wikipedia. No edits, just Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, great. Love a crowdsource. <laughs> okay. The novel follows a young boy initially named Dooney, nicknamed Sparrowhawk, born on the island of Gaunt. Discovering what that the boy has great innate power, his aunt, a witch, teaches him the little magic she knows. When his village is attacked by Kargish raiders, Dooney summons a fog to conceal the village and its inhabitants, enabling the residents to drive off the Kargs. Hearing of this, the powerful mage Ogion takes him as an apprentice and later gives him his true name, Ged. Ogion tries to teach Ged about the equilibrium, the concept that magic can upset the natural order of the world if used improperly. In an attempt to impress a girl, however, Ged searches Ogion's spellbooks and inadvertently summons a strange shadow which has to be banished by Ogion. Sensing Ged's eagerness to act and impatience with his slow teaching methods, Ogion asks if he would rather go to the renowned school for wizards on the island of Roke. Ged loves Ogion, but he decides to go to the school. At the school, Ged meets Jasper and is immediately on bad terms with him. He is befriended by an older student named Vetch, but generally remains aloof from anyone else. Ged's skills inspire admiration from teachers and students alike. He finds a small creature, an otak named Hoag, and keeps it as a pet. During a festival, Jasper acts condescendingly condescendingly towards Ged, provoking the latter's proud nature. Ged challenges him to a duel of magic and casts a powerful spell intended to raise the spirit of a legendary dead woman. The spell goes awry and instead releases a shadow creature which attacks him and scars his face. The archmaid Archmage Nemurl drives the shadow Nemurly. <gasps> oh, 
I'm I, making I that up. Maybe it is numeral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, move on, move on. Numeral, go. <laughs> The arch, the archmage, drive, archmage drives the shadow away, but at the cost of his life. Ged spends many months healing before resuming his studies. The new archmage, Genshur, describes the shadow as an ancient evil that wishes to possess Ged and warns him that the creature has no name. Ged eventually graduates and receives his wizard staff. He then takes up residence in the 90... I, nine, nine. 90 Isles, providing the poor villagers protection for the drag from the dragons that have seized and taken up residency residence on the nearby island of Pendor, but discovers that he is still being sought by the shadow. Knowing that he cannot guard against both threats at the same time, he sails to Pendor and gambles his life on a guess of the dra adult dragon's true name. When he is proved right, the dragon offers to tell him the name of the shadow, but Ged instead extracts a promise that the dragon and his offspring will never threaten the archipelago. Chased by the shadow, Ged flees to Oskil, having heard of the Stone of Terranon. He is sh attacked by the shadow and barely escapes into the court of Terranon. Sarit, the lady of the castle and the same girl that Ged had tried to impress, shows him the stone and urges Ged to speak to it, claiming it can give him limitless knowledge and power. Recognizing that the stone harbors one of the old powers, ancient, powerful, male malevolent beings, Ged refuses. He flees and is pursued by the stone's minions, but transforms into a swift falcon and escapes. And he loses his Otak. Ged flies back to Ogion on Gaunt. Unlike Genshur, Ogion insists that all creatures have a name and advises Ged to confront the Shadow. Ogion is proved right when Ged seeks out the Shadow. It flees from him. Ged pursues it in a small sailboat um, until it lures him into a fog where the boat is wrecked on a reef. Ged recovers with the help of an elderly couple marooned on a small island since they were children. The woman gives Ged a part of a broken bracelet as a gift. Ged patches the boat and resumes uh, his pursuit of the creature into the East Reach. On the island of Ifish, he meets his friend Vetch, who insists on joining him. They journey east, far beyond the last known lands, before they finally come up upon the shadow. Naming it with his own name, Ged merges with it and joyfully tells Vetch he is healed and whole. Let's get into who our major players are. Yes? Okay. So, there's Ged. Ged is his true name. He goes by Sparrowhawk. And before he was named Ged, he was called Dooney. It's just, he's our main guy. Um, he starts off powerful but untrained. He gets a little training from his aunt, who is like a village witch who like can kind of do stuff, but like doesn't understand the big picture. And he wants power, but in a sort of like boyish way, rather than a take over the world kind of way, just sort of like a, I want to see what I can do and make my mark kind of way and doesn't understand, right, like how that all plays into the equilibrium of the world. After the whole incident with the cargs and the mist, this is interesting that you pronounced it Ogion. I pronounced it Ogion and um, I don't know. Hit me. So I, I was on Ursula Kayla Gwynn's website looking up how to say Ged because I wasn't sure if it was soft G or hard G. She said that almost all of her G's are hard G's. And then she said it was like the the rhyme for Ogion was bogey on. <gasps> Bless her. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, also, I love this deep research that you did. Okay. Ogion <laughs> is... But she also said yeah. she doesn't care. Really. Queen. Okay. She was like, however you pronounce it is also fine. Whatever. Which is also the George R.R. R. R. Martin take on that, too. Yeah. Well, it's like, however you get in there is how yeah. you get in there. Fine. But yeah. out of respect to our queen, Ogion. Yeah. 
um, is a wise old wizard who is all about patience and mastery and understanding of the world's equilibrium. When he sort of adopts Ged as his apprentice, Ged is like very frustrated by how slowly everything is moving. They don't like fly to Ogion's home. They like take the long way and walk and like sleep under trees even when it's raining. Ogion is like, learn the names of all of these flowers and plants. Like it's all very like slow and chill. And like you get the impression early on that it's like the wiser way to do things. But Ged, as we've discussed, has sort of like this boyish energy. And like, although he loves Ogion, he's like, I want to go where they're going to teach me shit quick. <laughs> so when he goes to the wizard school on Roke, there are the nine masters who are the guys who are in charge. And they each have their own sort of like school of thing that they're good at. So there's the master namer who is like interested in the true names of everything. There's the master chanter who like tells all the stories, whatever. And then there's the archmage Nimerl, Nimerly, who is like in charge. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't look truly, up the pronunciation I, of Truly, that I have no idea. Right. It's N-E-M-M-E-R-L-E. And he's just the guy in charge um, who will eventually give his life that Ged may live. But they're just in general, a bunch of smart guys. There are no ladies. No no lady masters at the School of Rook. We can talk about this later. Around that time, Ged gets adopted by an Otak who loves him and finds him sleeping under a tree and is like, I'll also sleep here. Um, and then they're just inseparable forever. Um, a mix of like a squirrel and a cat is yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> right. And so Sarah and I were texting about this. I just want one so bad. Like I desire an Otak more than anything else. Just a little guy. Just a little guy. And then Vetch, whose true name is Asteriel, Astariel, sure, is literally the cutest bro to ever bro. He's like just this cool older guy who like sort of takes Ged under his wing, but is like actually emotionally available and very chill. Very even keeled, I would say, yeah. is Vetch's thing. And then Jasper is also an older boy. He's Vetch's age. But he's just a mean girl bully who encourages Ged to do tricky shit. And it's sort of at Jasper's behest that yes. Ged calls forth this shadow. And then we should talk about the shadow, who is also called a Gebeth, um, and is this sort of formless thing that Ged is hunted by and eventually must hunt in turn. So when he calls it forth in sort of this act of showing off to Jasper, he then needs to deal with the consequences and it can change shape, which is very scary. And it can inhabit people, which is very scary. So like Ged never really knows, like in the beginning, it's like sort of hard to track it down. Like he doesn't know what the signs are. And then over time, he sort of develops this inner compass that is like, it is close. It is far away. Like I'm getting closer. It is getting closer to me, whatever. If anyone's ever seen the movie, It Follows. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like that, right? Yeah. yeah um, true. We also have Petchvari which is when Ged finishes school, he's sort of like invited to this small community of island seaside towns um, to be their wizard. They're concerned about encroaching dragons. And while he's there, Petchberry is his only friend. They like get along really well. They like trade secrets with each other. It's very cute. But then Petchberry's child is dying of fever and in Ged's effort to save it, he shows the shadow where he is. Later, uh, the shadow in an effort to scare Ged will take Petchberry's form, but like drowned and scary. Then there's Yevaud, who is Yevaud, who is the dragon of Pendor, and he has a bunch of babies. 
Um, he's <laughs> he's the world's chillest dragon in that he's like he's huge. Um, so much so he's that very old. He's very old. He's not moving around a lot. You know, <laughs> um, he's got old bones. And so when Ged goes to face him, he initially thinks that Yavode is a tower of yeah. a castle, and then he's not. He's a dragon, and he sort of like accepts that. Gad knows his true name and is like, oh, yeah, grouchy. <laughs> I know. He is pretty chilling considering that Ged comes and kills four of his children, I totally. believe. Totally. Right. Well, I mean, dragons are just big lizards and lizards don't care about their babies. Like, it's fine. <laughs> um, and then, okay. And then there's Serret, who, I mean, she's the hot evil lady. What more is there to say, right? She's the child that tricks Ged into like his first vague encounter with the shadow. And then she turns up again in Terranon as the hot wife of the evil Lord. And yeah, she's just a tricky hot lady. It's sad. Um, and then there's Benderest, her husband, who's the evil guy. And basically he and Sarah together are trying for world domination through this stone. I listed the stone as a character. It's the foundation stone of Terranon's court. It presumably has like all the answers, including the name of Ged's shadow, which would allow him to control it. Um, but Ged senses its great evil and refuses to touch it, which is like everyone's pissed about that. And then the last person I have is Yero, Vetch. Uh, slash Asteriel's younger sister. Um, she's sort of Serret's foil. She's just like a nice 14-year-old girl who seems very normal and cares about our boys Asteriel and Ged. Um, her real name is Kest. Her true name is Kest. Um, and Kest means minnow, um, which Ged guesses in a very sweet way where he's like, you know, Yara reminds me of a minnow, like she's hard, like she's small and unassuming, but then just very difficult to catch. And then Asteriel goes, yeah, well, her true name is Kest, which means minnow. And that to me is like so fucking romantic. I don't know if they're going to like link up <laughs> I, later. I was, I was getting a romance vibe. From yeah, that. it was very cute. But like in, in an Ursula K. Le Guin high fantasy way in that it just sort of suggests that they're soulmates, but doesn't say anything about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's our major character list. Um, Overall, did you like it? One of my favorite books of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read this book before? I guess I actually didn't ask you Yeah, that. no, that's a good question. Um, No, I haven't. And that is like... <laughs> It is kind of wild. Like, I have read through a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin, right? Like, I read The Lathe of Heaven. I read Lavinia. I read The Dispossessed. I read The Left Hand of Darkness. Like, the Hainish cycle is where I live emotionally. Like, it's all good. Um, but this is, I think, what I would classify as my first Le Guin high fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But I loved it. Did you like it? Yes, I loved it, too. I just, like... It, I feel like it brought me back to a place of comfort, mm. like in such an extreme way that I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed like the themes of like um, the coming of age and also like identity mm -hmm. themes mm -hmm. that were in there. And like, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, also, my first Ursula K. Le Guin high fantasy. It's like a hug, right? Like it just feels so good. And I, I've been meaning to read it forever. Right. So this was just a good excuse yeah. <laughs> to actually do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Finally. 
Um, and I I think the fact that I was reading like the beautiful, well worn copy of oh. it too helped me feel like it was a hug. Also, it adds to the fucking magic. I'm telling you, the, uh, yeah. I also have like a ripped up paperback. Like it's yellow. It smells so good. <laughs> like it just smells <laughs> like old books. My- yeah, the pages of mine are all soft, Ugh. like they've been broken. Every single page Yum. has been like broken in. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Did you read the? Did yours have an afterword? Mine did not. I had the. We discussed this before starting because the cover is copyrighted as 1968. I do think I have the 1968 edition. So there was no. It's like a mass market paperback. She's very tiny. Um, there's no afterword. Yeah. So. I think she added an afterword mm-hmm. at some point. Good. It, um, so mine's from 2012, and the afterword was so good. Mm. And so there was a ton of Ursula K. Le Guin nuggets in there. So I put one in to our notes that says, this was what she wrote in the afterword. War as a moral metaphor is limited, limiting, and dangerous. By reducing the ac- choices of action to a war against whatever it is you divide the world into me or us good and them or it bad and reduce the ethical complexity and moral rit- richness of our life to yes no on off this is puerile misleading and degrading is what ursula k Le Guin said Queen. <laughs> and so how do you feel like this came across in the book do you feel like it did come across mm. in the book? Do you feel like those themes were in there? Yeah. Like the counteraction of that? Or how do you feel like Ursula K. Le Guin counteracted that like good versus bad narrative? Totally. I mean, like my first instinct was like, what do you mean? Like it is get good war against shadow bad. And my first read of that, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but the end really seals it where Ursula kind of does tricky um, does tricking where she's like, haha, the shadow's name was Ged. <laughs> like yeah. the whole time you're trying to find the shadow's true name, right? The stone offers Ged the shadow's true name. The shadow knows Ged's name and uses it against him. And it's sort of like, oh, well, if Ged knew the shadow's name, he could defeat it um, or at least put them on equal standing. And I think that Basically what happens, right, is that like when Ged has his final encounter with the shadow, he's like, your name is Ged. They say Ged to each other at the same time and sort of like merge. And in that way, she is like, actually, these were the same thing. We are all full of both power and darkness and good and evil. And right. So like, I think the ethical complexity part really comes in in that last 10 pages, 20 pages, where it becomes clear that there are two parts of the same whole. I think you can get tricked very easily into buying into the like us versus them idea because that's how books have trained you to read them, um, especially high fantasy. Yes. And then I can imagine that if you have bought into that wholesale, you can be kind of pissed by the end. But I think that it is a truly Ursula way to bop you on the head with your own mistake. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. um, you know, be like, it's more complicated than that. Chew on that for a little bit, you know? She binged it she a little. She binged at the it, end. I know, my queen. She did bing it. I know, good for her. The thing that I kept thinking about the whole time I was reading it is it did take me a minute to settle into it because... 
as a reader of mostly modern like within the past five years fantasy books for the majority of the fantasy books that i read a lot of them do have like the hot like the really like war a battle for good and evil overcoming the evil i was like when's the quote-unquote big bad Mm. so to to begin right um but of course that's not in here um and when i started to realize (laughs) what ursula was doing was when the evil thing that was created was created by Ged. Yeah. Our hero of the story created the evil mm. to start off with and created the problem. And when he's like going through the period of basically like self pity after he has created the shadow and caused the, um, the archmage to die. I feel like that was when I was like, what is Ursula doing here? She is starting to say like, we have, you know darkness inside of us that we can balance out basically and we're more complex than that i was also thinking like peter pan shadow while i was reading it peter pan's shadow which is also a part of him like a shadow is part of us because we all have a shadow and so like that darkness is inside of all of us and if you don't go after it so to speak you're not gonna like you have to tame the own darkness inside of your own self otherwise it gets comes overtaking and you can't like ignore those like bad feelings inside of you which is kind of what i was taking everything as is just like this long you know it's like the literary fiction review the literary fiction review that you read it's like there's so much subtext in there about like us facing ourselves and all of the like quote-unquote bad about ourselves um, which I think Ursula K. Le Guin is always much more interested in the nuance of, like, the decisions that humans make. Yeah. And that's the anthropology yeah. bit, I feel like. Yeah. Yes. No, and I yeah. also feel like, right, like, she is very into human complexity. And this is about mm. that more than it is about good and evil. And, like, if you're, I would say, like, if you're used to read, and this will come up later, but if you're used to reading George R. R. Martin, you might be like, what the hell? You know, I get it. I get why it would be upsetting to you. And she's also doing this, the, the, she's subverting tropes. I mean, when she wrote this, it's, it's like she wrote it in the time of like Lord of the Rings. And, you know, it's like, I mean, obviously she wrote it after Lord of the Rings, but that was still like the popular. That was the fantasy. Right. Yeah. 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 Which is very much a story of good and Mm -hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is in that story is that at the end of the day, it's about like friendship, each other, community and fellowship, <laughs> um, and, you know, and overcoming the darkness that is personally inside of you. Yes. Right. There is, there are war elements, of course, mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings, but that's what it has more than anything else too, is like the story of Frodo and Sam mm-hmm. getting destroying the ring. So I think that she was kind of almost expanding on that topic yeah. too. Yeah. I would say that's fair. Oh, so also in the afterward, I have another question from the afterward. Yeah. She just she discussed how she approached this book without thinking of feminism at all when she was writing it. She was like not involved in a feminist movement, but then later came back to the series and added in more women's perspectives because she returned to the book and was like, wow, this story is really about what men do and what men think. And 
the women are just like side pieces in the character. They're set pieces in the show, in the book rather. So how do you feel like that shows up in the book? Like, did it bother you at all while you're reading yeah. it? Oh yeah. No, I was definitely like, come on, babe. Like <laughs> if anything, I like from her sci-fi, I, I trust her so hard to like do the feminist thing. And it was definitely like, Ooh, Ooh, Ooh. Like, what's going on? And I, I do think, right, we've talked a little bit about how Yarrow and Serret are foils of one another. And it's interesting because it's it's pretty bad. Like, in that, like, Serret is, like, the hot evil lady. She's the and, honeypot. Right. She, tr- yes. And, like, she's hot and evil. And then Yarrow and Kest is, like, She's like literally the good one and she's like baking bread and crying over the boys and like yeah. that's her and like when when Ged is like on his return journey from like merging with the shadow he's like thinking about Yarrow and like her thinking of her waiting for him at home like yeah. warms his heart like whatever it's like it's actually quite yucky like it's yes. not good um so I did notice it. I did not like it. I'm proud of her for going back and adding things because she saw that gap. I do think that that's something that takes bravery to do, right? Like to acknowledge that you did something like that and then go back and want to fix it. I also like that she owns it because it's not like an inherently evil thing to make a mistake like that, right? Like it was... 1960 something like it's chill like it's all good (laughs) like she was like yeah I'll I'll go back and add some more things like she was never like burning herself on the pyre of this mistake but she did go back for it you know yeah I think I think it's with when she returned in 1990 with Mm Tahanu that is when she she added more to the story and actually think that some people say that Tahanu is their favorite one in the right cycle many people cycle Yes. Yes. And I also, like, Tahanu is not about, like, a cool young lady. Tahanu is about, like, a woman, a middle-aged woman. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which slaps also that Ursula K. Le Guin was like, yeah, sure, you can have a lady and she's going to be normal. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel (laughs) about one of my favorite reads for this year, The Adventures of Amina Mm, mm (laughs) Al-Sarafi. I'm just saying. Just saying. (laughs) Teddy. Right. Anyway. How did you feel about the mood of the book? I have two clear moods. Okay. One is, I okay, so like moods that I have identified. The first mood is Jewish. <laughs> um, I have a little sticky note. The sticky note is titled Earthsea and Judaism. <laughs> first bullet point, fun holiday cycles. They've got lots of great festivals similarly to judaism that have to do with the moon love that for you um old languages old languages of power hmm interesting sounds familiar chanting from scrolls also very jewish feasting jewish at the end of the sticky note i wrote it on page 54 which is like right when we're starting to get into like the loosing of the shadow but like we've been at roke for a long time i wrote dot 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 this is a yeshiva (laughs) because it's just where boys go to study scrolls (laughs) and learn things about ancient languages and old stories um so that's my first mood 
First mood okay. is Judaism. Second mood is mid-century medieval. Mm. And I think that that is like, are you familiar with mid-century medieval? No. Okay. You know, like mid-century modern furniture? Yeah. It's like that, but for um, medieval stuff. Like the 70s okay. really like made up its yeah. own medieval core. Um, yeah. And it's called mid-century medieval. I think that this is that in a book. Like it is <laughs> so fun in that it like truly feels like, like from my perspective, right? Like I think a lot of fantasy is like sort of like George R. R. Martin, for example, or like George R. R. Martin is probably like the best example I have, but there are other ones that like are reaching back to this like vibe of mid-century medieval and being like, okay, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it new. I'm going to do stuff to it. And so like in that sense, this kind of vibe of mid-century medieval literature is like, it's the mommy of all fantasy. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so when you go back to it, you're like, oh God, right. Like, you know, like you, you feel like you're coming back to something, even if you've never read it before, because there's yes. so much fantasy that's based on this feeling and then expanding on it. Yes. So when you get to something that's like, so at the core of that feeling, you're like, oh yeah, coming home yeah. to the primordial ooze of fantasy. That's what I feel <laughs> like this is. Um, right. We've talked the about prior- the primordial ooze of uh, fantasy. Yes, yes. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Oh my God. Can have like Ged and Frodo, and like <laughs> they can just like be hugging. I don't know, coming out of the ooze. Um, but that's yeah, that's sort of how I feel. I don't know. What did you think the vibe was? So uh, when I was reading, it was a rainy day, and it was raining. I was on my couch under a blanket. Sarah sent me a like... picture of this, and I was so pissed at you. I was like, fuck. <laughs> you for showing me this because I was at work it was awful (laughs) and I was just it was it like you said it brought me back it gave me a nostalgic feeling Mm -hmm. that I can only describe as like this feeling that when I used to lay in my bedroom reading this one specific fantasy book over and over again that I had that was um it We'll talk about it again later, but it's Dealing with Dragons um, by um, Patricia Reed. I used to read that book. Like, I would just be like, I'm bored. I'm reading this book again. And it's about a girl who just lives with a dragon. And they're just, like, doing life together, Mm -hmm. her and her dragon. And she has to sometimes, like, fend people off from trying to hurt her dragon. And it gave me this, like, deep return to that feeling of, like, being a kid being full of wonder and like finding a new universe to exist in. And so like I was saying earlier, it's just like felt like Ursula K. Le Guin was whispering a story into my ears, like soothingly whispering it, Mm -hmm. this universe into me that like slowly unfolded. Um, Like the map is unfolding in front of me. Um, So, I definitely get like it just had like an immediate nostalgia for me, which is so funny because I've never read it before. Right. Um, I also felt like the mood was really warm because everything, everybody was so kind to Ged, even while he was shutting out the world. Mm. 
the world was in even when he made mistakes the world was still kind to him and i think that that was something that's like really very optimistic of ursula k Le Guin to put in the book it's just like his community still cared for him after he made these mis- made this huge mistake somebody literally died because of it and they were like we still love and care about you even if it's like looks a little different call in culture yeah 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 <laughs> it was very very yeah very nice and i also yeah so i think that that was the mood for me was mostly cozy all right well my next question for you is that my library i don't know about your library um we have this shelved as ya do you agree why or why not i will say the branch of the bpl that this copy came from has it under juvenile what the fuck yeah (laughs) it's j sci-fi fantasy so i'm assuming it's juvenile yeah that's crazy i know yeah maybe they have their ya in with their juve Uh, they might they might all all of them do it a little differently because i think right at my my branch it's mostly teen here's what i'll say is also in the afterward ursula caleguin would talked about when she was approached to write a ya series or a book for teens or whatever Once upon a time, a publisher asked me if I'd write a novel for teenagers. Oh no, I said. No, thanks very much, but I couldn't. It was the idea of writing with a specific audience in mind or a specific age of reader that scared me off. Um, I'd published fantasy and science fiction, but I was interested in the form of itself, not in who read it or how old they were. When I said, oh no, he just said, well, think about it. Fantasy, maybe, whatever you like. I thought about it. Slowly the idea sank in. Would writing for older kids be so different from just writing? Why? Despite what some adults seem to think, teenagers are fully human, and some of them read as intensely and keenly as if their life depended on it. Sometimes, maybe it does. I think, I guess, I mean, she did write it for teens, so truly in the, like, real classification of it, that was the audience as intended, but... I will say that I appreciate how she wrote it is there's no, she didn't hold back at all. No pandering. There's no pandering. The book is complex. The themes are complex. The writing style is complex. Um, because Ursula K. Le Guin was like, well, teenagers are smart. So yep, here we go. Which I yep. think is something that in a, some slash a lot of YA can really be missing. And that's why I feel like it's really refreshing to read a YA book that doesn't do that at yeah. all. Um, yeah. Like, the only other YA book I feel like I've read recently that I don't think changed its writing style to me at all, because I didn't even realize it was a YA book when I was reading it, was When the Angels Left the Old Country. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I know. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. I think that's the perfect example of that, because it doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't hold back at all. The book isn't isn't being held back in any way um so i guess why i just based on the fact that that's what ursula k Le Guin intended it to be so who am i to say but i think right. adults would benefit from this too like i'm not gonna lie this is not lucy zegas this is not at lucy zegas but i feel like or nk jemison probably some of those one star reviews or those lower star reviews are people who may have lost some of their like literary comprehension reading comprehension literary Mm. comprehension not lost it but have read a lot of books that maybe undermine Mm. 
mm. their own ability to think through complex themes. Yes. Because this is what... Because ha- the authors bing it too hard. Yes, the danger... I was just going to say the danger of the bing is that if you expect everything to be binged forever and always, you never have to really engage with your own brain, which there's nothing wrong with wanting to read books for that reason, but I do think it is also still good for you to be challenged intellectually by a book. And I think that this book, when I read it, I was like, is this really a book for teens? And it was because I was undermining teens' ability to think myself and think through complex themes. Whereas, like, my favorite book when I was 15 was The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. (laughs) Like, (laughs) let's be for real. (laughs) Let's talk about shadows, you know? Oh, my God, Sarah. (laughs) That's so fucked up. But also, like, yes, like, teens are incredibly smart. Like, this is the thing, is that I also, I picked it up and was like, fuck, like, these pros are dense. Like, this is an intense book yeah um but like who understands more the struggle of accepting all parts of yourself than a fucking teenager yeah like literally no one yes so i i do agree that this is ya i think it's like the kind of ya that does not as you said pander to its ya-ness it doesn't bing for the teen it assumes that the teen can figure out the bing by themselves yeah yeah it took me a while to be convinced, but I, I did get there in the end. I think Ursula is just trusting teens to be smart and we all should do that. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think I think maybe some of those reviews could be just kind of when we talked about um Camp Zero and you know it was like the wrong audience mm-hmm. for the book. I yeah. think that could be part of it too. I agree. Right. So and then be- also like right, I think the other thing too is that this book is old. Um, if you do not have the context for it because you don't check publication dates, you don't know who Ursula K. Le Guin is, and your library has a nice new hard copy, you might be like, oh, this yeah. is not... But, this isn't what I thought. Right. Yeah. When you look at it as a foundational text for fantasy fiction, yeah, you become more... Um, I think that adds a lot of context. I, also, I mean, also, like, teenagers across the world were reading... And kids were reading Lord of the Rings, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and if you can read Lord of the Rings and understand it, you can read this and understand I, I it I know, because sure. Lord of like the Rings can yeah. be a, a slog, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know? Like, it is high, high fantasy, but Tolkien wrote it for his kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing, mm-hmm. is I... This is a whole can of worms but i just feel like today we really undermine kids abilities and teens abilities to critical think for critical thinking and it's a lot of why i can reflect that too it bangs too hard man it bangs too like, hard i liked labyrinth lost for what it was but i think it's a good example of this where it's yes. like actually we binged it um because we don't trust you to get it and it's yeah. like just let us get it yeah let us get it absolutely are you going to read the rest of them? Absolutely. Me too. If I don't finish Tahanu by the end of the month, somebody step on my neck and kill me. Like, <laughs> I am so ready to read the rest of this series. Um, I hope, may it be so, this is a blessing for me, may it be so that all of our copies of the rest of the series are as old and disfigured as the copies that we got for this series. Like, I just am so thrilled to like get in there. It's fall. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready to consume <laughs> this media. Like, yeah, I'm absolutely going to read the rest. 
Are you? Yes, right? Yes, I am going to read it. I okay. think I, I already have um, the next one on hold from the library, so. Bless. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Oh. I see a question from you that I'm excited to answer. Okay. I have a dumb question. This is a little yeah. silly, but so I, I so. we've talked about it before, I think, but I love A Song of Ice and Fire for so, so many reasons. I've been fully uh, Game of Thrones pilled. As you might say, um, I would never say that. I know. I know. I've been I've been ensorcelled by it. <laughs> okay, but do you think Ursula K. Le Guin liked and or ever read A Song of Ice and Fire? I tried to find on the internet any evidence of such a thing and couldn't. So I'm gonna hurt George's feelings. I think if she read it, she wouldn't have liked it. I disagree. Okay. All right, let me tell you let me tell you why I think that and then you can take me down point for point. I think that she wouldn't like it because it is so war-based and so like binary in the way that in that quote you were like, "Ugh, me or us good and them or it bad" is puerile, misleading and degrading. Yeah. I, I don't I'm not like I I get that there is complexity in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, I get that there's, like, a lot of, like, who is doing the right thing, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, they're all fighting an ice monster. Um, and the ice monster is evil. Yeah. Um, and I think it might be a little black and white for her. Take me down. Okay. <laughs> no, so I, I, the others are, like, the biggest, I think, risk on that. So I do, I do kind of mostly agree with that. But I do think what George R. R. Martin is saying is the wars that we are fighting amongst each other are the feudal wars. Like those are the mm-hmm. ones that are not worth our time. Like mm-hmm. the, the game of Thrones is the issue in mm-hmm. the book it is like, because it's preventing us to see from seeing what is actually happening in the world that is causing harm because we are so focused on the wars warring between each other. Now, the other part with the others is that they were created... This is... Oh, my God. Sorry. I, like, love A Song of Ice and Fire. No, I know. Um, They were created by the children of the forest mm. to to fight against uh, the the men, I think, or I think the Andals. Mm-hmm. And the first men, maybe? No, the Andals. And so they were... They were... <laughs> They were created by like the good, the good people, mm. right? Like the natives of the land, right? Mm. And they were created by the by magic, and they'd be spun out of control. Okay, basically, I um, didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they My have a little, but not that good. I know, but they are pretty evil. Is the thing too? <laughs> so like they are like the evil bad. Like that's <laughs> the th- right. that no, is no, no, the but- thing. But the, I see the parallel that you're drawing between Ged and his shadow and yeah. the yeah. the others and um, the people of the forest. I that think I think I think it also ultimately descend depends on like how the series finishes out if it ever does. I think as it stands sure. now, there are the definitely those like overarching themes. Like I think the dragon element could at first be seen as very much like a. And here's like the weapon to save us all. Like war saves us all, right? But it's like George R. R. Martin is like the dragons represent nuclear warfare, <laughs> and how you cannot control that once you open right. that 
that can of worms yeah. that can of worms you cannot stop it so yeah. i don't know i mean i don't think it really matters if ursula kayla Gwynn liked a song of ice and fire or not but i just like wonder because she talks about yeah. how she didn't like how fantasy kind of became almost like a factory yeah of books being pumped out like a whole industry in and of itself but i think i don't know i think she would have liked themes of it mm-hmm. yeah i'm with you on that so sarah what are you reading now so i am reading what is it called the great the great believers yes oh my god (laughs) the great believers yes 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 i also just picked up you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me Uh. from the library i just picked up the ghost stories of edith wharton god 11 ghost stories written by edith wharton (laughs) jesus fucking christ okay well let me know how that goes for you um maybe i'll get into edith wharton if i'm reading ghost stories that's all right yeah i'll I'll you know the ghost stories yeah Yeah, okay what are you Um, reading I just finished The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. Those of you who know me um, know this, and those of you who don't know me should know this about me. I am obsessed with John Brown. Um, I literally have a t-shirt that says John Brown did nothing wrong. I love John Brown. In case you don't know who I'm talking about, he is the guy that got hanged for um, starting the Harper's Ferry Rebellion right before the Civil War, and his death was like a huge part of why the Civil War happened. Um, The Good Lord Bird is sort of about John Brown, but is mostly about this young kid who's like riding with John Brown. It, it, oh, it is so good. Um, and right now I am reading um, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, which is a memoir um, by someone who is very into food and survived and left the USSR. Um, and it's it's going okay. It's a little dry, but I like it. You'd have to be really into, be into food if you start that one. Um, okay, Sarah, God damn it. Where did you get your fucking book? <laughs> From the library. <laughs> All right. Um, Where's oh, yours from? Mine is also from the library. Um, so that brings us up to Sarah is at eight points. I am at 7.5 points. For those of you just joining us for this episode because you love Ursula K. Le Guin, um, Sarah and I play a game where depending on where you get your book from, you get a certain amount of points or a certain amount of points re- uh, deducted. If you get your book from Amazon, we fucking hate you. It is minus two points. If you get it from a big retailer like Target, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, um, you don't get any points. If you get it from an indie bookstore, you get half a point because we love our indies. And if you get it from a library, you get one point. Yes. Um, okay. So Sarah's winning still by half a point, and I'm mad about it. Um, <laughs> earlier today, can change next time, okay? <laughs> that's true. When I when I found out that Sarah got her book from the library, I got so mad, and she was like, um, please relax. <laughs> it's a fake game that we play on our podcast. So true, Bestie. Okay. So reader's advisory for this book. I This was really interesting to me because what I did when I – because I wrote – My initial thought when I asked the YA question was actually, like when I wrote it down, was that it wasn't YA. It was like too intense. And then I realized through my reader's advisory that that just wasn't true because all of my reader's advisory picks were middle grade. They were middle grade (laughs) books. And I was like, oh shit, actually this is YA. I'm just being a dink. So my reader's (laughs) advisory for this book would be We Free Men by Terry Pratchett um, for that similarly cozy feeling. Um, It's a lot funnier because it's Terry Pratchett. There are like a lot of good jokes in there. It's very clever, Um, but it has that similarly cozy vibe. Um, 
Also, Redwall by Brian Jacques. Um, that's the one where they're all mice and moles and rabbits and things. Um, it has that similar mid-century fantasy vibe. Um, and then I'll also say for um, those of us who love the girlies in their fantasy YA, um, please check out Tamora Pierce's Song of the Lioness, um, which does handle, you know, good and evil in a complex way, but also follows a young lady um, who wants to be a knight. Um, and it's <laughs> a very, very good book. Um, Sarah, hit me with it. What do you think? Okay. Reader's Advisory. So I mentioned this book earlier. And I haven't read it, I think, probably since I was um, 11. But I recommend Dealing with Dragons by Patricia C. Reed, which I also just picked up from the library. Oh my God. This book made me want to read it so badly. Cute. Um, so this is a book that I read over and over again as a kid. And it is about a young princess who is going through all of like her like princess training and is like I really do not want to be a princess this is not for me and she runs away and she lives with a dragon and she and her dragon BFF go through trials and tribulations together she has to protect the dragon the dragon has to protect her um, and it was like this story that just made me feel so cozy as a kid mm-hmm. and and I know it's like a little goofy for the themes of like, I don't want to be a princess, but I think that that's an when, important theme. Also, I think when you're an 11 year old girl who feels awkward and uncomfortable and like unsure of yourself and doesn't feel girly that reading a book with another girl who doesn't feel necessarily super girly or feminine is like one of the best things to read as a kid mm-hmm. um, because it just really get, makes you feel not alone in that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you just feel like outside of like the realms of acceptable femininity, I feel like that is like a very helpful book to read. Um, I loved it as a kid. I'm going to reread it. And so hopefully it still holds up. <laughs> Fingers but crossed I for would you. say that I think it probably does because when I went to go put it on hold, there were a tons of holds on the like ebook versions oh, cute. of the book. So people are from still the library. after it. Yeah, yeah. So people are still reading it. And then for an adult recommendation, I would actually recommend um, A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms by George R. R. Martin. Um, they that is a book of three novellas um, about um, Dunk the Lunks. Sir Duncan the Tall in the Song of Ice and Fire uh, universe um, and about him kind of like stumbling through life and having to like help people and do what's right and wrong and see if he's a true a true knight and it doesn't always come down to like war or not war I what is right or wrong yeah I solidly agree on that recommendation actually because I think that is the George R.R. Martin book that has that feeling that we've been trying to pin down um yeah i think that's a great recommendation actually i i love i love that that book is great yeah it's really good so good that that is also the primordial ooze of fantasy for sure yes for sure yeah if you want to ooze yes (laughs) read a night of the seven kingdoms (laughs) (laughs) okay well thank you so much for joining us for this episode on a wizard of earthsea um in two weeks, we are going to be reading The Rage of Dragons Wish us by luck. Evan Winter. Um, <laughs> she's long. She is long, but she's so good. Okay. 
And uh, you can find us on social media at, at @shelvingcart on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Tumblr, and TikTok. And our email is shelvingcart at gmail.com. All right. Love you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.